Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is D.W. Gibson. D.W. is an award-winning writer who shared a National Magazine Award for his work on This is the Story of One Block in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, for New York Magazine. His work also has appeared in Harper's, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Nation. He joins us today to discuss his new book, 14 Miles, Building the Border Wall. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems. The photo you're about to see is disturbing. It shows a young father and his 23-month-old daughter who died trying to cross the Rio Grande in South Texas. They were found in shallow water a few hundred yards from where they tried to cross. New video just in of the border wall prototype construction down in Otay Mesa. Security is tight right now as federal, state, and local law enforcement prepare for possible protests. And now to recent ICE raids targeting so-called sanctuary cities all over California. More than 100 people were arrested, including two dozen in San Diego County. I have a question. How can you do that to your own people? We have a very powerful wall, but you can cut through any wall, as you know. My name is D.W. Gibson, and I think people should be able to cross borders as easily as products. Sorry, not sorry. D.W., thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. You start your book discussing the building of the wall prototypes. Can you just set that scene a little bit for us? Yeah, it was very surreal. Uh, So you have the Otay Mesa Desert in California, uh, which is just uh, about 14 miles east of San Diego in the the urban center there. Uh, But it very quickly becomes open terrain. And so in the fall of 2017, they built eight prototypes of a wall. Each was 30 feet high by 30 feet wide. And they were all lined up in a single file row sort of like uh, some kind of contest, right? Uh, the, 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 the image that came to a lot of people's mind was sort of beauty pageant contestants, right? I think the, the Trump sort of elicits that, that imagery. But it was very theatrical in that it was uh, eight designs, a lot of similarities between them, but all lined up there in this sort of competitive way. In the end, none of them were used for any of the border wall construction that's going on with great rapidity right now. They were all destroyed and discarded and it all uh, happened to the tune of about $20 million. That's awful and good because it didn't get used and it didn't get built. Can you tell us about the water truck at this prototype site? Yeah, so that really caught my attention from the get-go. I think it's one thing that just shows how widespread the destruction is of, of construction at the border. So while they were building the, the prototypes, you know, it's actually, like I said, fall of 2017, but it's still really hot in the California desert, right? Temperatures can still get up to 90 degrees in the daytime. And it's really dusty and dry, dry more to the point than the heat. So when you're working there, you have eight crews working on eight prototypes, it gets really dusty and, and dirty. So they would bring a 4,000 gallon tanker truck in about every hour to come and spritz the whole ground with water so that the dust wouldn't be an issue for the workers, which, you know, on the surface is a good thing for the workers that are there. You don't want them to be working in hazardous conditions. But again, keep in mind, this is happening in California, experiencing extreme drought conditions where people are being very careful with their water usage. And I couldn't help but just see 4,000 gallons of water go to wetting the ground for this Mm. vanity project every hour and think that that was something that sort of, to me, embodied the full measure of resources that were going into doing this pointless exercise. I mean, the thing that strikes me so much about this is that there is this huge secrecy on the American side of the border with miles of closed, unpaved space between the access point to the construction site, while 200 feet away in a small home across the border, Aurelia Avila sits and watches. I mean, it's so mind-boggling, and the, the, the visual of that dichotomy 
is just so profound. Can you tell us about her and why you decided to include her in your book? Yeah. So uh, when I started visiting the location, you know, you could go right up to the spot where they were going to build. But as it got closer to time to actually do some work, they started putting up more and more fencing and and walling off the area where they were going to do the construction more and more to where you couldn't get it within a couple of miles on of it on the U.S. side. So I started going over to the to the Mexican side, Tijuana, and they have the colonias uh, in the east, sort of eastern part of the city there, uh, working class neighborhoods. A lot of people that live in those neighborhoods work in the maquiladoras, right? the big factories that are American companies, international companies that have moved down there for cheap labor. And so you have people that live in lean-to homes, shacks, uh, plywood homes they built over time. And so you have one of the colonias is called Las Torres, and it's directly across the fence from the prototypes. Now, this requires clarification because they're building prototypes for a fence yet to come. But we need to understand there are already multiple fences there, particularly in the Otay Mesa Desert. There were two fences already in place where they were building the prototypes. Kind of insane. Workers installed the final section of fencing stretching from near the Pacific Ocean to Otay Mountain. It's a top priority for Border Patrol, um, and, it, and it's definitely an accomplishment that, that we've sought for a while, getting the old dilapidated fence replaced. The new wall is done double the height of the old fencing. The Trump administration allocated $147 million for the 14-mile project in 2017, with work starting last May. So the people who had lived in Las Torres, including Aurelia and her family, they were used to the fences that were there, and their home was just a couple of hundred feet from the existing primary fence. So they saw the prototypes going up in real time as they were being built, and living quite literally in the shadow of those prototypes. Aurelia, the fascinating thing about her is she's an American citizen. She was born in Ventura, California. She was 21 years old when I was interviewing there, so she's about 24 now, I suppose. And her father was deported shortly after she was born in the States. Her mom tried to raise her in the States, couldn't make it happen. They finally decided, okay, we're going to go back and live with your father in Mexico. And so she was, by and large, raised in Mexico. Now she's a young mom. She's got a daughter of her own. And she's been looking for a way to assert her, her citizenship. And she has part of the documentation she needs. She needs a social security card, a birth certificate. She doesn't have all of it, but she has some of it. But her name, her last name is misspelled on her birth certificate. Mm. A D is in place where there should be a V. So that further complicates her effort to assert her citizenship. And I, I, I just thought it was quite striking that we have here a fellow citizen yeah. living in the shadow of the wall, not able to access her birth country, uh, not able to, to introduce her daughter to it. Well, if it, it feels like this is our immigration policy broken down on like a, a micro scale, right? I mean, we have a 4,000 gallon water truck making hourly deliveries, you know, to spill water on on the ground around a construction site while, uh, while a family just a few hundred feet away can't benefit from that water. It just, I don't know, it feels so tragic. It's shocking video. Border Patrol agents caught destroying food and water left in the Arizona desert for immigrants. The aid was supplied by a humanitarian organization looking to save them from the sometimes deadly journey. It is tragic, and it's 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 all very theatrical. And I, I don't use that word lightheartedly. I don't mean to diminish it because it's it's actually there's a there's a certain kind of violence to it, right? I mean, it's a lack of uh, resources, as you said, people can't get uh, access to water, so it's very real. But the border is a place where theatrics really sort of come out to play. I mean, it really is. Because when you think about border security and building a wall, so much of that, people tend to conflate that with things like immigration policy and right. figuring out what kind of visa programs we want to have. But it really has nothing to do with that. It really is the nation state, the country trying to assert itself and saying, hey, look, we're drawing a line right here. You can't pass this line because we don't want you to. And it really is sort of a, a, a day late dollar short. I mean, I think so much of the action on so much of these theatrics that Trump drove um, were about the nation state trying to reassert itself, understanding how much power it had already given up to capitalism, right? So we started right. throwing capitalism all out into the world saying, you know, okay, we're gonna spread democracy, but really spreading capitalism the whole time. And now, uh, international companies operate with as much cloud as many governments, more so in some cases. And so a lot of times this is a nation state in the U.S. and otherwise pushing back and trying to reclaim some power for itself. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's purposely complicated, right? They make immigration 
policy and laws complicated for a reason. When people say our immigration system is broken, of all the immigration attorneys that I've spoken to in my advocacy work, they're all like, no, it's not. This is exactly what it's designed to do. It's designed to keep certain people out of the country. And obviously, Trump weaponized that. I'm interested to know how you became interested in covering and fighting against the border wall in particular. Well, so I'd, I'd done a project before on gentrification. I wrote a book, An Oral History of Gentrification, and I spent a couple of years in New York City interviewing landlords and tenants and uh, bankers and drug dealers, anyone who had you know a say on how that city had changed over decades. And something that kept coming up again uh, in all my conversations these lines we draw to define ourselves and we do it in our daily lives, in our communities. I don't go to this side of town because, you know, I stay on this side of the street because, right? We have all these lines we use to identify ourselves, to define ourselves as individuals. And so I wondered, what does that look like when we telescope out into communities that are bigger and bigger and bigger? And what does that mean on a national level? And to me, the border is where that plays out. You know, it is the the, the national uh, realization of this tendency, this human tendency to try to define yourself with lines. And those lines allow you to define two things, especially in American terms. They allow you to define um, your success, right? This is all my land behind me, but on the other side of the right. fence, this is mine. It allows you to define responsibility, right? So it, for me, it's like this, this telescoping out from the idea of the white picket fence, right? That's the American dream, right? All That's all it is at the end of the day. It's a white picket fence. It's a it's private property. It's my home. And that, that line, that white picket fence, that border wall, it defines the extent of my responsibility and it defines the extent of my success. And I think that that's something that we would be well served to learn from the border. Can we think about responsibility in a more uh, expansive way? You know, not just my success within my communities, but the success of my community at large, in this case, America, right? And, and I think that America is doing the same where it's saying, you know, we're just going to worry about our success. We're going to sort of turn a blind eye to how the world is already interconnected in ways that we can't roll back. And we're going to try to cage in our sense of responsibility. And I think that's something you see play out at the border. There was one kid that was in the corner and I saw him. He was again down on us. So what I did was targeting him. And, uh, hey man, what's going on? I go, uh, I go, so, and I just started talking to him for everybody. And he was answering because he had to. And I'm like, so what's up, man? I go, what's your, what's your take on, on us, on the Migra? What's your take on us? What do, you, what do you think? He goes, I have a question. How can you do that to your own people? And I'm like, so by, I go, by your own people? I go, what do you mean? I go, am I a Mexican citizen? And he goes, no, but you're obviously Mexican. I go, I'm very, I go, I'm very proud of it. I'm Mexican descent. I go, what? I go, I'm also, you see my patch here? see this flag over here I said uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an American I go and I, my job is to protect you you're my people so what you, I, now what you're trying to ask me I know very clearly what you're trying to ask me I said you how can I grab poor innocent people and uh, you know send them back to, to Mexico where they're from correct yeah I'm like okay well when uh, let's say you have a house and I give you, the thing. you have a house you're gonna buy people over don't you want to know who's coming over don't you want? Don't you want to have it? Yeah. Okay. So if ten people come over, you don't know any of them. Are you willing to allow me in your house, just hang out, or would you want to know who's coming in your house? I guess I know. Okay. Well, think about it, man. He goes. That makes sense. Recognizing the arbitrary lines in our daily existence, right, is something that I had never really thought of before, and we've seen how. The lines can create conflict even just with neighbors, right? Like your tree is on my side. It's yeah. a tree for fuck's sake. Like yeah. you want me to move the tree? Like, it's so unreal. But I think it's such an interesting perspective 
And I'd like for you to tell us a little bit specifically about the border, because I think, you know, for most Americans, it's like this mythological place of tumbleweeds and straight, flat deserts. But that's not right, is it? No, no. And, 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 and yeah, I think there's a few reasons why we, we think about it that way. So it is dynamic. It is so dynamic. And the reason my, my book zeroes in on San Diego County exclusively, right? Because I knew if I tried to talk to people over the course of 2000 miles, it'd be too much. So I really zeroed in on San Diego County and just take a look at it, it in and of itself. One of the biggest uh, cities in the country in San Diego proper. Um, you have wide open terrain with ranchers who love Trump. You know, I think it already blows apart sort of idea of California and what to expect from California. So along the border, you have mm. sporadic settings of intense urban areas, right? Like San Diego, like El Paso. You have a few of these along the way. And then you do have wide open space. You do have wide open terrain. The point is you have both of those things going on and you have complex ecosystems, right? So think about like the Tijuana River, which lets out to the Pacific Ocean now. It is one of the most polluted, the, the Tijuana River estuary, one of the most polluted bodies of water in the country, right? So th that right there shows you that it is a complicated uh, international struggle to figure out how to think about borders because it requires cooperation to address issues like that. I like to think of borders as ecosystems of human activity. You know, there's so much going on. Some of San Diego's best teachers and students live in Tijuana and they cross the border every day. A lot of workers who are building things for American companies that have offices in San Diego are working in factories in Mexico. It's this really interconnected space where commerce is happening, education is happening, culture is happening. We know there are so many tribes, uh, uh, Native American populations, communities that have uh, uh, villages on both sides of the border, right? The Kumaye in California, the Tona Odom in, in Arizona and others. So that's what the border is. It's an ecosystem of human activity. But if you talk to border patrol, the border is one thing, it's dangerous. It's dangerous, that's the only thing it is. We tend to think about the border as this place where danger plays out. And I would encourage us to think about it as just another piece of society. And just like right. every community, every neighborhood, there's all kinds of elements, including danger. Crime happens, people get robbed, things happen, and it's, it's terrible that that happens. But the border region is no different from other parts of society in that regard. And, but, but we've, in a post 9-11 world, been taught to think about the border as a national security issue, as a militarized zone, as a, as, a, as a security zone that we need to be very careful around. And that's just a really one-dimensional picture that loses about 95% of what the border is about. And I mean, before Trump's wall, what was border security like? Right. Yes. I mean, it's it's not like this is all of a sudden a new issue. No, it's not. And 9-11 really is a, a watershed moment with border security, because before that, you had a lot of tension, particularly between Democrats and Republicans, about how to approach it. After 9-11, everybody gets nervous. It gets thrown into national security. Everybody gets on board with militarizing the border zone. So you have the likes of Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden voting for the Secure Fence Act of 2006, which uh, gave you know tons of money to build fencing, right? It's only when you get to Trump and it becomes so cartoonish and over the top that the left starts to open its eyes to like, wait, wait, so what have we been doing for the last 15 years? I mean, I think that if we can look for an upside or a, a light at the end of the tunnel as we move past Trump, it's that he made the idea of a wall so antiquated, so, so medieval, that I think that now we might get to see some daylight between the two parties and think about border security in a new way. Consider this, the vast majority of crime that has interdicted the border, the vast majority, and certainly uh, violent crime, is interdicted at ports of entry by customs officers. Border patrol mm. agents do not interdict nearly as much crime as customs agents at ports of entry. So if we want to get serious about making the border a secure place where we interdict drugs uh, and we interdict guns that are traveling to the south from the U.S., right. um, then it's about finding ways to make uh, ports of entry more secure uh, with X-ray machines, with increased cameras, uh, with increased technology that allows them to process people and cars going in and out because, again, for some people, that's part of their daily commute, uh, crossing a border. And your book focuses on San Diego. Will you tell us a little bit about how San Diego grew into a border community? It really resisted it for generations. I mean, I interviewed uh, Jerry Sanders, who didn't make it into the book, but he was a mayor of San Diego. He was a chief of police there. 
And while he was mayor, you know, a lot of the policies for the city, they tried to distance themselves from the border because they really did not want to be seen as a border town. That's such a sort of um, small, sort of insignificant thing that carries uh, uh, connotations of danger and so forth, right? So they really worked to distance themselves, the political leadership in San Diego, to de- be defined more of a, a Navy town, right? A military town in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a big sort of American city with, with international business conglomerates. That's changed um, in a sort of post-NAFTA world and a 21st century world, especially as local interests in the San Diego area realize how much um, their economy is tied to Tijuana, right? So, so, and Jerry Sanders, I should add, is now uh, running the Chamber of Commerce and has really changed his tune. It's all about cooperation. It's all about finding ways to work together. And I don't know what it says about human beings, but we tend to not really be able to pay attention to issues until money's involved, right? So we've got right. there with, with climate change, right? So big business starts to talk about climate change because they can see it affecting their, their bottom line. And I think the same goes for the border, right? Business community in, in San Diego, especially even like Republican-oriented business community, functions very differently than Republicans in Iowa and Nebraska who fear sort of the idea of terrorists coming across the border. Republicans in San Diego understand that their economic fortunes are tied to Tijuana. And so they've, they've made huge strides in terms of embracing that. But, you know, you can still fly over on a, in a helicopter over the border. You see Tijuana built right up to the line, this bustling city. San Diego, not so much. They've really sort of limited how the areas right up against the border can be developed. Again, starting to change. But I think that has to do with institutionalized ways we look at the border and also ways we fear the people that are coming from the South, people that look differently from us, people that aren't white, you know? Well, it seems like there's this ongoing conflict in the relationship between property owners at the border, the cities and towns there like San Diego and the federal government. And the alliances shift back and forth as administrations change and the ability to profit changes. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. And so and that's very complicated, too, because it depends on the property owner. And in a place like, for instance, Texas, where it's generally speaking much more uh, politically open to the idea of a border wall, you have major issues there with construction. They're not able to get a lot done because it's tiny little uh, counties with a lot of private properties. And a lot of families that have had ranches for generations don't want to give them up. And the Trump administration has been trying to, to, to capture them through eminent uh, uh, domain. And so that's slowed their progress there. The U.S. government doesn't actually own all of the borderlands. Most of the Texas border is privately owned. Constructing a continuous border wall means the federal government must build through these private lands. So the government uses eminent domain laws to take the land it needs. When somebody says, well, we're going to build a wall, regardless, we're going to take your land, regardless, that's a little bit too much. But in California, you just have two big counties, a lot of public land, a lot of federal land, so it makes it more possible. But you do also have uh, property owners there, too, and their sort of own narratives and ambition get tangled up in the idea of a border wall. So I, I met a guy named Rocky De La Fuente, who is in some ways sort of the inverse of Aurelia, who we talked about earlier in Las Torres. Uh, Rocky was uh, raised in Tijuana. Uh, his parents were from there. His dad was a successful businessman. Uh, and because they were middle class, they wanted to make sure he was born in the U.S. <laughs> so when his mom was pregnant, she raced across the border to San Diego, gave birth to him in San Diego. And he's a U.S. citizen. He's a phenomenally uh, a successful uh, first uh, car salesman and now property owner in California. And he owns property all around the world. And he owns about 2,500 acres right at the border, right where they were building the prototypes. And the U.S. government has been negotiating with Rocky for years and years about buying his land. And, you know, Rocky's very politically advantageous. He, he wants to make as much money as he can on the property, but he doesn't like the idea of a border wall. So he's acted in contradictory terms. At times, he's brought lawsuits against the federal government when they've put censors on his land without his permission. But then, you know, he just sold a, about a year ago another mile of land to the um, uh, uh, federal government for a million six so they could build more fencing. So I think, you know, personal interests really uh, come into play when you look at people that live along the border. You came up with the idea of building here the first professional raceway west of the Mississippi. I, I came up, I did the whole thing, I got all the approvals. Part of the approvals, they wanted me to build the primary fence and the secondary fence. So they wanted me to build the wall. And basically, and the number one opponent for this project, from the beginning of the project to the end of the project, was the Border Patrol. 
how can you put a racetrack in the border? We won't be able to cap on his property. Mm-hmm. We won't be able to use his property. Yeah. So I'm saying, hey, guys, give me, this is a private property. The Border Patrol would go on every single meeting and object and says, well, what would you like him to do? Would you like him to build a fence? Says, yeah. I mean, for a moment, I'm amazed they didn't ask me to build it from the ocean all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. We can learn things from people who live along the border and have property along the border, but we should be careful with how much their experience can telescope out to inform us. Because, you know, none of us are going to deal with trucks of people uh, zipping across our property in the middle of the night, right? If you live on the border, that might actually happen. So people who live on the border have unique challenges of their own. They have unique understandings. And they have unique challenges too. And so I think we should be careful with how we discuss those challenges because they are, they are limited to people who live in those areas. And I, and I think the people who live in the, along the border, they're sort of contradictory terms. The, the, the trouble they have processing the idea of a border, I think that does telescope out because it is contradictory. I mean, as you, as you referenced earlier, the idea of a tree on a property line, right? I mean, I, I reference it in the book, but Robert Frost's poem, Mending Wall, Right. I mean, we, we all know the most famous line from that poem, good fences make good neighbors. But in a way, that's the exact opposite of what that poem is about. It, that poem is all about questioning the idea of a property line. Yes, there's some efficacy in it. Yes, it has purpose. But, but, but does it do more harm than good? That's the question of the poem. And we haven't really sunk our teeth into that question as Americans. And I think what gets lost in all of this are, are the human stories, right? The human element to this. And of course, there are the families from Mexico and Central America who are trying to get here to flee violence or extreme poverty. And it seems to me that this wall only hurts people. Is there anyone that it it actually helps? I mean, does Trump have some sort of, I can't imagine what it would be, but a valid argument that controlling immigration using a border wall will protect American interests? It's a great question. I think it's a question that the left needs to to honestly uh, answer. I I count myself in in that camp, of course. I I think that, um, let me put it this way, any place where someone could make a really good argument that a wall would be helpful, there was already a wall there long before Trump. So Tijuana, San Diego is a great example. The vast majority of the crossings back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, the vast majority were in Tijuana and San Diego. You you can go on YouTube, look at videos of of hundreds of people in the middle of the night just crossing across, going across the border. And um, Border Patrol grabs as many as they can, and they let the others go across. And it's kind of a crazy scene to see. So if you put up barriers in, in an urban environment like that, it can be helpful for Border Patrol to do their job. That said, you know, it goes back to this question of what do we want the border to look like? Do we want it to be a security zone? Because I think that's a fundamental question that we have to answer for ourselves. And I would point out that when you had in the 80s and 90s, these massive crossings of people on a regular basis, the reason you had those regular massive crossings is because people weren't coming into the U.S. to stay. People were coming into the U.S. to work for the day or for the week or for the month, and they were very happily going back home. That was the cycle of work, particularly blue collar, particularly agricultural work. When we started putting up barriers and border walls, that's when it became hard for people to go back home. And that's when they had to start staying in the US. So that's when you see these big Mexican communities propping up in big American cities all across the country, again, particularly in the post 9-11 world, because they couldn't return to home anymore. They had to stay here. Right. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, what are we really cutting off, you know, uh, with with border barriers? And I think ultimately we're not going to find answers to 21st century immigration questions with with barriers at the border. We're not. We're going to find them in other ways. Oh, well, and we have to elect people that can think outside of the box to discover those other ways, because I feel like we don't know how to creatively think when it comes to immigration. No. Yeah. You know, it just seems so stark, right? Uh, and 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 there's no middle ground. It's like people either want open borders or or people want to close everything off. And I'm wondering how much at this point, how much of the wall is is currently built and and where is it on the border? Yeah. He came into office with about 700 miles in place. He's not added much to that. I think the last time I looked a few weeks ago, it was about 30 to 40 miles of of new fencing. So not a whole lot of new fencing. And that, I should say, often gets mentioned in the press as, hey, look, he hasn't actually done that much. But we need to really understand that, that even in areas where he's done replacement fencing, 
it wreaks havoc because the old fences that they're tearing down are these tiny little eight foot things that were built out of recycled metal. What's going up now is, is 20 feet high, in some cases, 30 feet high, steel ballards require- And who's paying for it? Uh, so we're paying for it. Taxpayers are paying for it. So the Congress uh, designated about $7 billion for border wall construction, but Trump has uh, taken about another $12 billion from various parts of the government through his emergency funding declaration. And the Supreme Court gave him deference on that too. So he's he's got billions of dollars to work with. And this year, 2020, is the year when they've made very fast progress. They are zipping right along. Again, the Kumaye mm. that I know in, in California, they've had a, a sacred burial sites dug up. There have been major environmental passages for jaguar and other big cats that have been cut off as well. There have been rivers that have been dried up in Texas. So so there are so the ecological damage is very real. And this is something yeah. Biden's going to have to address because he has said, well, he's going to stop construction on day one. He's not going to tear anything down. I really think he's going to have to revisit that. Most of the construction has taken place in California and Arizona, very little in Texas, again, because of the private property issue that the Trump administration has been uh, working on. In Arizona, contractors are rushing to put in as many miles of border wall as they can before the end of the Trump administration. Landowners and conservationists are protesting the bulldozing of pristine natural areas. And let's remember, this is all for a barrier that the incoming Biden administration is expected to cancel. And, you know, I, I want to go back to the point you made. I think it's a really good one about how we lack imagination when we talk about these things. You know, when I was writing about gentrification, I learned very quickly, if I ever said that word, particularly to like a banker or a real estate agent, they would shut down immediately because it was just like a conversation stopper, that word. And I feel like certain things in the immigration realm work that way too. For instance, bring up the, the word amnesty bring up the phrase pathway to citizenship. And everybody is assigned meaning to that, right? Trump supporters said that's letting everybody in, right? All the criminals, right? right? right. So everyone's assigned meaning to that. I think we could do really well to get away from those same arguments and start talking about different things. For instance, like I'm working on a project now called Idea Space. It's a website we're building on immigration issues. And we're trying to find topics, immigration policy points that are less inflammatory, that if we can make them happen, maybe it'll build a path to more substantial change. And, and it, it's hard to find, but there are places where people across the political aisle agree. I'll give you an example. Strengthen our enforcement of existing labor laws. So that seems far afield. What does that have to do with borders? But so much about immigration and letting people into the country is about work, right? People have this feeling that their jobs are being taken, which isn't actually the case, but people have that feeling. And so and we know that about 37% of workplace violations are able to be ferreted out by the offices that are supposed to find them because they have such little staffing. They have no funding. So imagine if we were enforcing labor laws, if we were holding re employers accountable, right? If we were making sure workers weren't being abused in their job, citizens and foreigners that come to work in the country. That would be one, and that's something that Steve King from Iowa wants to see. That's something that Bernie Sanders from uh, wants to see. So, so you have these nuggets of, of, of consensus. One other example is, is looking at a point system for legal immigration. This is something that Australia uses and China uses, lots of countries. President Trump has sung the praises of a point system. We want people coming in to our country based on merit and based on the fact that they are going to love our country and they respect our people in our country. The total number right now uh, of immigrants who do get green cards is over one million a year. Uh, and so what he is saying is, look, whether that's the right number or not, um, the people we're allowing in are not the right people. Some of the most far left advocates in immigration sector that I know uh, advocate for a point system. Will you just discuss what that is and how that would work? Yeah, so it's it has again broad appeal because uh, until you get into the details, which make it more tricky. But essentially, it says, "Look, we're going to set up a, a, a values as a country. You know, we value someone who can come here and work. We value someone who can come here and work in uh, the computer industry. We value someone who can come and work in agriculture. We don't have a lot of people from Mongolia or Nepal or that region of the world. We'd like to prioritize people from that region of the world. You can you can create all kind of a, a rubric." for all kinds of value, for employment, for language skills. I talked to a professor at Cornell who put together a model of the program and he even, they put together, uh, you earn points for being a woman. 
right? Because think about it, all the visa programs we have now are geared towards white males from, from Europe, right? That's the, sort of the easiest category to sort of find a way to get into the country, particularly through employment, right? So basically a point system allows you to assign value to all of the things that a person, an individual brings to the US with them. Again, economic skills, cultural skills, otherwise, any kind of skills. And, and those points that one accrues speak to their ability to get a visa. The great thing about this system is that it can be amended over time. It doesn't have to be fixed, right? It should be responsive. So if, the, if there's a gap between what the US labor market needs and what the native born population is providing, you know, right now it's, I think, a couple of uh, 1% or just below 1%, then that gives us a number about how many work visas we're looking to, to fill, right? Maybe next year it's about a 2% gap, so it'll be different next year. So the point system can be fluid in terms of what's prioritized. Maybe in this year you get five points for being a computer programmer. Next year we have a glut of them and you only get three points for being a computer programmer, right? So this can be very, very fluid. The trouble with it, and, and the devil is in the details, right? Because the arguments that we'll have is, well, what do we value? Right. So I value someone who speaks multiple languages. Right. If you've got that skill right. set, I think you add so much to our culture, but someone else might not value that as much. So that's going to be the difficulty in the legislative process. But I think it makes it easier knowing that it's fluid, knowing that it's not forever and that we can constantly refine the system that we build. So there are these things we can talk about. I think we should start talking more and more about what we want our legal immigration system to be. What do we want it to be? Because it has such little intention. We haven't we didn't have a major immigration bill since 1986. I mean, and then before that, it goes back to the 60s. And before that, the 20s. It's this Frankenstein of policies that have been sort of built on top of each other. And I think it's time to go to tabula rasa, man, wipe the slate clean and build a new legal immigration system. Put illegal immigration aside for just a minute and focus on what kind of legal immigration system we want to have. I think if we can do that, it'll expand our imagination, bring down the sort of flames that we've we've really fanned and make us more productive. What do you think happens? You mentioned Biden before, but what happens when Biden becomes president? Do you think it's going to get better? What about the wall? I mean, are we contractually obligated to continue building the wall? What do you think is going to come next in the next four years? So, you know, uh, immigration is a little bit different than all other topics in this regard. And I think, you know, we're all waiting to see what's going to happen in, in Georgia and what's going to happen with the Senate, because that'll be consequential in a lot of ways. But with regard to immigration, th because the Trump administration has done so much through executive action, that will be reversible. And that is encouraging. That's so encouraging. And in a, the last couple of weeks, I've been working on a sort of just a, a crib sheet of, of all the things that, that Biden can do. And, and we're going to put that up at ideaspace.com soon. And I encourage people to look at it because there are so many starting points and it's kind of exciting to see. So DACA can be extended, right? We can roll back the Muslim travel ban, right? We can stop zero tolerance. We can stop making asylum seekers stay in, in, in Mexico at these decrepit camps as they apply. We can freeze deportations while we work out better protocol for who's subjected to that process, right? We can look at detention. So all those things fit into executive action. And that's exciting because that can happen more expeditiously. My immigration policy is built around keeping families together, modernizing the immigration system by keeping families, unification and diversity as pillars of our immigration system, which it used to be. Ending Trump's cruel and humane policy at the border to rip children from their mother's arms. Take immediate action to protect dreamers, including the more than 100,000 eligible dreamers from East and South Asia. Rescinding the un-American Muslim ban immediately. Restoring refugee admission in line with the values and historic leadership of our country. Raising the target to a minimum of 125,000 people a year. There'll still be challenges because Biden is going to have to build back up infrastructure 
you know, uh, Trump didn't just sign executive orders. He really sort of destroyed a lot of sort of nonprofit sector in infrastructure, governmental office infrastructure that 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 made so many of the policies that uh, Biden wants to reverse possible. So it's going to take some time, but he can get to work right away on that. That's fantastic. And I think on the legislative side, again, we need to look at these rays of hope, these areas where there is consensus, even if it's measured, and attack them. So, so better investment in enforcing labor laws, looking at a, a point system. I think listening to people like Gary Herbert, the outgoing Republican governor of Utah, who begged the Trump administration to let them accept more refugees because they realized what a value they were to their communities and their economy. So I think listening to voices like that on the Republican side are going to be is, is going to be very, very helpful to us. And again, there are some great ideas out there. Pete Buttigieg was talking about place-based visas. You know, you look at some of the Rust Belt cities that have started to come back uh, in upstate New York, Middletown, New York, I, I did some reporting on and places in Ohio too, and Hazleton, Pennsylvania. These communities have come back because uh, they're filled with immigrants that have taken the agricultural jobs. Those mayors, those county commissioners know that and they want more immigrants to come to their communities. So Pete Buttigieg was floating an idea of place-based visas. You know, what if you wanna come live and work in Youngstown, Ohio and help revitalize it? Let's give you a visa for a couple of years. So I think there's some really exciting ideas out there that could garner bipartisan support. My belief and my feeling is, is we often make things so complex. And really, I think what it comes down to is everyone should have the opportunity to earn a good living and have a good life. And I don't think that there is a uh, certainly a mother on the planet who would choose to, especially knowing how dangerous it can be now, to cross the border with a child if they weren't fleeing something that is really, really, really horrible. And I think it's important that we remember that part of it, and especially as we're implementing policy, because I think the complexity of it all is how we got to this place where we have certain administrations using what's already on the books and sort of weaponizing it, like what Trump did with 1325 and 1326, which was... I think that was the last law that was put on the books as far as immigration goes. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're right. And, and, and that's why, you know, the executive branch has so much power on this front uh, because it's about interpreting the laws, right? And setting the rules for how they're interpreted. And some of this can play out in the courts later down the line, but that's where the power exists with the sort of the interpretation. That's where we saw Trump wreak so much havoc with zero tolerance and so forth, widespread use of that policy. Those two points, too, that you made about like so everyone's ability, everyone's should have the right to be able to earn a living. That point paired with a mother's journey over hundreds of miles with her young child. Those two things go together. And I think a lot of times, too, Americans become callous to the idea of, well, they're just here to get work. Th that's survival. And we do have to be accountable to them. I, again, the reason I, I keep going back to employment and, and work is because We've been sold this lie, right? We've been told by capitalism, look, free market, everybody can, can operate as they please. So laborers, you operate in a free labor market, capitalists, entrepreneurs, go try to start your thing and make it work. And capitalism is spread across the globe, right? So now in, in the 21st century, it's in China, it's everywhere. It's our global system of interacting. But what we haven't done, we've given the rights of global capitalism to corporations, right? You can have a headquarters here. You can have your factories in Mexico. Right. You can have another thing. But we haven't given that freedom to workers. Workers deserve the freedoms that corporations have. So if someone is going to work their tail off for hours every day uh, making products for an American company in Tijuana, they have the right to come across the border uh, to where those products are sold. In the place where the prototypes were being built, they tore them down. And what are they doing right now? Even as we speak, what are they doing? They're building a port of entry and not just any port of entry. They're building a commercial port of entry for 18 wheelers to bring more products into the US, not for people to cross more easily into the US, right? That to me embodies everything, embodies the theatrics of the prototypes and embodies the reality of the border. It's about letting capitalism, letting money flow. 
Well, workers have been lied to. They've been told you operate in a free labor market. You can work wherever you want. It's not true. We have severe restraints on where we can work and how we can work in this globalized economy. And I think that's the big reckoning that we're going to have in the next several years and decades to come. How do we afford workers the freedom of movement we've afforded to corporations Mm. and products? I think it's a great point. And if you add that to the fact that we're a nation of values founded on the ideal that everyone is created equal and that people move right, to make better lives for themselves and their families. If we can embody all of those moral principles with policy and change that works for not only um, us, but for everyone, I, I think we would be in such better shape. And thank you for this incredible, incredible work that you do in this area. It is so vital. I think my last question is, what, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? I, I think people who are, are sort of understand the issues. So two very fast anecdotes that I think sort of encapsulate my hope. Uh, Jonathan Yost, who I went into the desert with, he does water drops for, for migrants that are crossing. There are a few organizations that do this. So what is our purpose out here? It's about building empathy. It's about learning. It's about becoming educated, not just in a classroom, reading a, an article, watching a video on your Facebook feed. This is about being out here on the ground and getting a little glimpse. Make no mistake. What you got in your hand there, that jug, that jug, that jug, all these jugs that you brought, it can make the difference between life and death for, for a mother, a daughter, an uncle, an aunt. What you brought today, I mean, that is the difference between life and death for a lot of people. A lot of people have died along our border. A lot of people have died right out here. This is not some purely educational exercise. Right? What we do, we've been doing it for 20 years and because it has saved lives. All right, you came out here, you brought the water. Let's do it. Um, I went with him on a blazing hot day and a group of people, we dropped 10 but one gallon buckets, right? 10 gallons of water we, we were able to drop and there wouldn't be another drop for another month. Compare that to 4,000 gallons being used at, you know, every hour at the, at the site. So Jonathan does this. And I said, Jonathan, why do you do this? Why, why do you do this work? And he's, he told me a story. He told me a story about when he was a young man and he just joined the army and he got really drunk one night at a party, drove home drunk, created a huge uh, uh, car crash. Uh, thankfully, nobody was hurt. And the cops saw him and saw that he was enlisted in the army and, and uh, called his dad and let his dad take him home. No breathalyzer, no police report. Mm-hmm. And, and Jonathan knows that that's because he's a white young man. And, um, and he's come to realize that his whole life is about righting that wrong. Because if he had been someone else, it would have been very different. And I think sort of if we can get more people like me, white men, to come to those kinds of realizations, I think it'll be helpful. Bill Jenkins, you talk about our values. Bill Jenkins, a minister in San Diego who ran for a long time, the only migrant shelter in San Diego, over 30 in Tijuana for migrants, but only one in San Diego mm. run by a Methodist minister, a retired Methodist minister. And he said to me, he said, you know, the whole Bible, the whole Bible is the story of migration. From the beginning, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, to John the Baptist, exiled to the island of Patmos, the whole book is about migration. And I say to that, you know, the first evolution of life, when there were little, you know, fragments of life living in water, and they had to develop, you know, ultraviolet rays from the sun were coming down, they had to develop ability to move away from the ultraviolet rays to live. To live, they had to move. Migration is life. You know, that's migration is life. We have to understand that. That's it's part of life. And climate change um, drives migration. Yeah, these these issues are definitely not going to get any easier with climate change. No, 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 absolutely not. And it's folded into this issue. But I think I think that recognizing migration as a natural act of human activity, a human action, and, and that gives me hope if people can come around to that. And I think if more people can have these these personal awakenings, you know, however you can get there with your family members through your own experiences, but see the world beyond your own nose, see the world beyond your own white picket fence. Yeah, we have to see the world beyond our arbitrary lines that we've created in our lives. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. A wall is an immorality. It's not who we are as a nation. And this is not a wall between Mexico and the United States that the president is creating here. It's a wall between reality and his constituents. 
his supporters. He does not want them to know what he's doing to Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security in his budget proposal. He does not want them to know what he's doing to clean air and clean water and the rest in his Department of Interior and of, uh, of EPA. He does not want them to know how he is hurting them, so he keeps the subject on the wall. He's a master of diversion. What a waste. What a complete, hateful, colossal waste this folly of Trump turned out to be. From the very start of his very first campaign, this is what he said he was going to do, and it won him the White House. But like the wall itself, it was just a sham. A racist stunt that wasted untold resources in a time when we desperately need them for other things. It was anti-American. Who the hell did he think we were keeping out? How in the world has it become not just okay, but expected for America to turn a cold shoulder to those in need? How in the world can anyone say that we represent true greatness when we are terrified of desperately poor people coming here to find a better life? How can we possibly believe in the American dream when we willfully deny it to so many? Well, we're about to be done with Trump. Thank God. But that damage done by his hateful wall will take generations to clear. I hope President Biden destroys it. I hope he pulls it down and builds bridges where the walls were. I hope we find a way to work with the countries these poor people come from to help them find prosperity and safety. And I hope we will share our bounty with those who need it so very much. It's time for us to start living up to the stories we tell about ourselves. It's time to make America love again. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.